You're listening to Conservation Connection. Presented by Last Chance Endeavors. I'm Chance. I'm Sarah Catherine. We're a husband and wife team running a wildlife education nonprofit focused on connecting students to their environment. Each week, here on Conservation Connection, we do just that by introducing you to the groundbreaking science and conservation work that's happening every day across the globe. We talk to professionals working to protect our planet and ask them about their career, their current projects, their wild and crazy stories from the field, and everything in between. This episode is a collaboration with the Sun Valley Forum in Sun Valley, Idaho, and was made possible through a generous donation by the Nancy P. and Richard K. Robbins Family Foundation. The Sun Valley Forum is an intergenerational meeting of forward-thinking professionals that come from a diverse range of disciplines. These experts are on the cutting edge of what's happening in the fight for our future, and they've all come together at the Sun Valley Forum to share ideas and collaborate on solutions for a greener tomorrow. Let's get to the show. Alrighty, guys, welcome to another episode of Conservation Connection. We are here in Idaho at the Sun Valley Forum, and we are very excited to be sitting down with Tim LaSalle, who is an adjunct professor and co-founder at the Center for Regenerative Agriculture at Chico State University. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with both of you. So I have heard you described as the father of regenerative agriculture. Can you tell me what makes regenerative different from sustainable? Great question. Really, let's think about the term sustainable. And Dana Meadows from MIT explained to us decades ago, we have overshot any opportunity for sustainability. So it's really sort of a historical uh, icon that we can look at in a museum, conversations around sustainability. We've overshot it in so many levels from the standpoint of overfishing the oceans, from the loss of soil on the planet. We can go on and on and on as far as a point of we don't want to sort of hold what we have because we don't have enough to actually create future life for future generations. Regeneration and regenerative agriculture literally is how we help nature build soil and much more rapidly than what textbooks said we could do. We're not looking at it through geological lens. We're looking at it through a biological living system lens. And in that framing and supporting nature, we can build topsoil at an inch a year, which textbooks say is not possible. That's, yeah, we're, we are going to be diving very deep into that. So if I were to sort of frame this idea, it's we've sort of trashed the hotel room, so to speak, in terms of our planet systems. And so housekeeping cannot sustain that. They're not going to come in and, and be able to get it back to a presentable state. Regenerative agriculture, regeneration is the idea of returning the hotel room, the planet, back to a thriving system that is able to take care of itself, right? In a way, that's a good explanation. But let's also at least challenge ourselves a little further from this perspective. And that is that the planet didn't try and host 8 billion humans. And that's a huge pressure. And as we stay in sort of a, of a paradigm of a neoliberal economic model about consumption, about, you know, elevating economic levels and consuming more, can the planet withstand that? And that, I think, is a very deep question of where we should engage when we talk about green or renewable energies. That's really important. But I don't hear the conversations about reducing the overall use 
which is what the planet will need because we don't need to increase consumption. We probably need to have more even levels of consumption around the world, but not increase total levels. That is, so much of our consumption is polluting. So much of our consumption is mining. So much of our consumption is exhausting. But let's bring it back to soil for a minute. That's the living system that nature helped evolve in her wisdom that can actually build life and build it very, very fast. And that's where we can regenerate and feed 8 billion people without real major stress. Soil is such a fascinating structure because it's sort of this interplay between abiotic and biotic factors, right? You've got your underlying bedrock that mm. gets broken up and, and turned into this mineral component of soil, but it is also, it's so much more than just dirt, right? It has this thriving biological community. It has these organic components. So for somebody who has no scientific background in soil whatsoever, can you give me just a little bit of soil 101? How do we think about soils? What is their role and what are their inputs and outputs? Well, this is our paradigm shift today because I think for 10,000 years, we've thought of soil as something we extract from, and we've thought of it more as mineral. We haven't understood there's more life below the soil line than there is above, a lot more life. And that's where a lot of the biomass of life lives, is below the soil surface. So that starts to make us rethink that question. And we're really sort of talking about soils today in this new paradigm, in this new regenerative approach as the plant, the root, the root exudates what the plant is actually excreting to the organisms to feed the organisms. The wide array of organisms from bacteria to fungi to nematodes to protozoa, all the way up to earthworms, and also then the mineral element. That soil, what you described earlier with regard to the bedrock being broken down and into mineral components, that's dirt. There's no life in it yet. And so when the planet was rock and water, there was no soil. And where did it come from? Where did it come from? It came from this living system. The biology came forward. And then if you look at our Great Plains, eventually there was an evolution of life forms. And we eventually had ruminants that ate grass, which stimulated them feeding the organisms so they could grow back. And the organisms feeding the plants so that they could grow in the root zone. And then organic matter was left really we're redefining organic matter. It's not just leaf and root and branches. Over 50% in a healthy soil is the dead bodies of the microorganisms. Over 50%. It's that living, breathing, actually breathing, life forms that are creating most of the beneficial organic matter for the health of the plant and the health of the planet. So... I do want to get more into your position and your work at CSU Chico. But before that, I want to dive a little bit into your background. How did you get where you are today? Well, yeah, I'd be delighted to share that. I've been blessed with many opportunities around the globe to be able to learn and see and observe and question and wonder what's a better way because we were as a species on this planet fairly destructive and we continue to be. And that doesn't provide a future for our children, our grandchildren, or those to come. That's very irresponsible of us. And we have to critically think this through and critically think through our own education, our own science-based training that was often reductionistic, often looking at one simple question, not how the whole system functions together. 
And nature only functions as a whole system. It doesn't function ever as one element of it. So I began as I left the university in 86. It was a, you know, a tenured full professor knowing I could do more in the world. I started engaging and developing leaders in the agricultural world. And then I ended up running the Savory Center for Holistic Management, knowing that we needed to stop the spread of deserts where the ruminant has an appropriate place when it's managed well, where we can actually draw carbon out of the atmosphere, build the biodiversity in the system. Most livestock are not managed well, and it degrades. But when managed well, it's robust. It's the way the Great Plains were developed, the buffalo, the grazing, the predators, etc. I then moved to Rodale Institute, the Organic Research Center, knowing that so much of chemicalized high-input agriculture with its tillage was destroying soils. And we have 400 dead zones around the world, mostly sourced from agricultural runoff. So that doesn't function towards a future, and we have to rethink what we're doing. And so investigating that, I learned so much at Rodale from the standpoint of how we can grow crops at equal yields without fertilizers, as an example. So that didn't end up in the Chesapeake Bay or the Delaware Bay. So that was a really crucial element. But so much of organic to this day continues with the tillage operational pieces because that's a lot of the weed control. You're talking about physically disrupting the ground with a till, breaking it up so that you can plant your crop this year. That's a, a better term. It's disruption. You know, we would say we love the word in English cultivation where, you know, we use it in a lot of different frames. But in agriculture, it is this disruption that actually breaks up the soil structure, makes it more erodible. It'll wash right down the hills. It's gone forever. And it's also uh, reduces the soil's ability to percolate water. Uh, because the air spaces are gone. And it breaks up the fungal communities, which are crucial to the health of this soil. So I went with Howard Buffett to Africa and four years worked on researching and demonstrating, teaching and working in different countries. But, but my plots that he gave me, he said, Tim, I've got for you some of the best, worst soils in the world. And, and he <laughs> was right. They were phosphorus deficient, et cetera, et cetera, and sandy. And I said, okay, we've got to figure out how to do this without costly inputs, without toxic inputs, and without tilling or disrupting. And so in that, I saw results immediately. I mean, here was phosphorus poor soils, but within less than a year, my crops didn't show phosphorus deficiency. Soil tests showed in the reduction of science, phosphorus deficiency. That's because it was bound up in the mineral element. And without biology, there's nothing to liberate it. And that's where when you start to feed the life of the soil through living roots and pull out the most of the chemicals, you start to demineralize because the biology makes it available to the plant and the plant feeds the biology. And that's, that's the machinery of life that has been developed over millions of years is to extract what they need for life from the bare minerals that are available, right? So nobody is going to be more efficient at that than the organisms that have relied on that for survival for millions of years. Chance, it's not just efficient, it's they have the uh, adaptability to do it. For example, some of the fungi can be so small, they can get through cracks in the mineral or the bedrock that you can't even see. And by getting in there, release their acids and, and pull some of these elements or minerals that the plant needs because the plant signaled it needed it and send it to the plant. 
It will bring water that's way out there, a little droplet that the plant may need because it's a drought, and bring it to the plant. What does it barter for? In its bartering, it says, I want your sugars and carbohydrates. I want your carbon. I want something that feeds my life. And the plant happily, through photosynthesis, taking the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, building its body structures, making these sugars, will exudate it through the root tips and feed the life of the soil. So it multiplies and grows. The plant grows. Uh, it's more resistant to insects because it's healthier than when it's fertilized. And you end up with building carbon, which means you're building the ability of the soil to hold more moisture and you're having living carbon that then becomes food for other organisms in that whole complex life system below the soil surface. It sounds like there's just this massive hubbub of conversation going on between these various components, the roots, the fungal elements, the bacterial elements, the nematodes, the minerals themselves. It's this give and take. And it's, I mean, it's as biodiverse and complex as, you know, a rainforest, right? There's just millions of different types of things that all have a role that work together to create a healthy, resilient ecosystem that then can provide, you know, crops for us to eat right. so that we can survive. You know, if we're not taking care of these tiny micro ecosystems, then they cannot support life at a higher level on Earth. That's really well understood. If you would go to a tropical rainforest now and you say, well, we're not applying nitrogen fertilizer, how come everything's so green? The plant said, I need nitrogen. There are free associating nitrogen fixers that are bacteria that will live in the rhizosphere of the root. And amoeba sometimes will eat those and release the excess nitrogen to the plant root, you know, and the plant will continue to grow those bacteria because it wants the nitrogen. It's not just legumes that have nitrogen fixing bacteria in their root nodules, it's other plants too. And it's this whole community and it's this signaling. And there's even quorum sensing where different ones will come together to respond to the signal because it, it supports that whole living system. What we've done is we've disturbed that. We've disturbed it with tillage as a big disturbance in soil. We've disturbed it often with chemicals because that will either kill or the roots shut down to associating with the living organisms. It's like chemical dependency, literally. And they no longer send out root hairs. And they don't, there's even a, a rhizophagy scenario that occurs, which I didn't know about until the last two years, where the plants will actually consume. They'll suck in single cell organisms. We didn't know plants did that. That's bizarre. And they disassemble them and take the nitrogen or take whatever, and then they spit out the remnants. And sometimes those organisms can reform and remultiply and go through the cycle again. So it is complex. Nature has a very deep intelligence around this. And in some ways, I really hope nature never reveals all her secrets to us. <laughs> uh, but let's learn how we support that work and get robust levels of carbon being pulled out of the atmosphere, robust levels of food produced to feed the world in the locale that the people are, and that we can then improve our water cycles, improve our biodiversity, and bring them back to a more fulfilling nature that is healthier for all systems. Yeah. I think what I'm really getting from this conversation so far is that even though I am pretty well involved in the world of like what's good for the planet, the soil system is so much more complex than any of my schooling has ever prepared me for. You know, 
I learned the nitrogen cycle, right? Where there's, you have a plant and it can't use atmospheric nitrogen. So it relies on little bacteria in the soil to convert N2 into biologically available nitrogen. Uh, and then it goes into the plants, it dies, falls, breaks down, and, and that's it. And you're, you're talking about something that is orders of magnitudes more complex than what I had ever learned it to be. And it's, you know, this is some of my favorite stuff to do is to learn how little I know about the planet because there is so much more to learn about it. Well, there is. And, and I think that our primary motivation today is that we're in crisis and we're in crisis in a couple of levels. One of the things is we know we're in climate crisis because we have maybe five years to make significant changes, to decarbonize, you know, our, our economy. But I want to say everybody likes to use that term. Let's remember to recarbonize our soil. And wonderfully, we can pull that out of the atmosphere to do that. The other crisis we're living with, particularly when I look at your age ranges right now, that this is what you will be witnessing and experiencing, is FAO explains to us we have less than 55 years of topsoil left on this planet. And it's because how we are farming and caring for it, how we are constructing cities, et cetera, we're losing that which can produce food and it's washing away or blowing away. So that we have 10,000 years of history. And you'd think civilization and many civilizations have imploded as they've destroyed their soils. And Jared Diamond's talked about a lot of those in his book, Collapse. David Montgomery's talked about a lot of that in his book, Dirt, The Erosion of Civilization. These, this issue itself says, wait, we have to regenerate our soils. And we can support nature to do that rapidly. So there could be a future for food production, and there could be a future in climate. We could not only, if we would decarbonize our economy the planet's still going to heat up because we have all this legacy CO2 up there. But if we decarbonize our economy and regenerate our soils, we can draw that legacy down and take it from where it's toxin and poison to us to where it is a life-giving, life-feeding source for us and the planet as a whole. And we could actually bring it back down to 280. We could come back to pre-industrial levels if we would stop emitting and draw it back into the living system of the soil. And I think that brings us in nicely to after your retirement, you decided to go back to CSU Chico. What are you doing there? Why did you go? So when I came back, I knew retirement wasn't going to work for me. I'd seen, <laughs> I, I'd seen too much in the world. And I knew that I'd been gifted enough experiences and education that I could contribute. And Dr. Cindy Daly at Chico State and I began a conversation and then we gathered other faculty around and we began this conversation about creating a center for regenerative agriculture, the new paradigm. And there were enough faculty that got excited, not just from the College of Ag, but from the College of Natural Sciences and, and other colleges. And so we got some deans together and the president of the university wrapped her arms around the idea because she understood how important climate crisis was. She really began to understand the science of what we were telling her. And we created this center. So I live six hours away from Chico. So I am a, not exactly a daily on-campus person. <laughs> That's a long commute. But yes, but, but in essence with Zoom and with a lot of the work I do, um, I, I certainly am supporting Dr. Daly as the director of the center. And I can maintain a little bit not full-time. So 
we can say, I'm not retired, but I've slowed down slightly. <laughs> and in essence, what this is giving us a chance to do now is not only do research in this realm, but Dr. Daly has brought some grants in to train technical service providers like NRCS people and, and conservation districts, uh, people that work with farmers, to train farmers on how you build a really a regenerative plan for your farm and how you build your system back to health and improve the economics, the economic return in your farming systems, um, and then education for graduates, students, and undergraduates. But our research is really significant because nobody has been looking too well at a whole systems question around how we should be farming and working with nature. Um, Dr. Richard Teague at Texas A&M had been doing that in grazing systems, in whole systems, and he was an outlier. Everybody else was pretty much in reductionistic world. Uh, the same in, in agriculture. Most of the land grants, et cetera, are in the reductionism, into one specific question, one element of the question. Uh, we don't have time for that anymore. We have to look at the whole system and support her. And that brings us to the Soil Carbon Accrual Project. Thank you, Chance. So it tell does. me a little bit more about <laughs> that. It does. So here we are, you know, in this climate crisis, and there's not enough hard data yet to say we got to just jump into regenerative and to make a transition into something this significantly as far as our mindset, our paradigm of how we're going to work with soil. That's changing thousands of years of history, hundreds of years of science that has been reductionistic in its, in its perspectives, and it's changing our understanding of how we work with it. So we need hard data. And so we, we have a design of five farms where we can do side-by-side field-scale regenerative farming next to conventional farming, which could include the tillage, the disturbance, the fertilizers, et cetera. Whereas we're going to go into the more no-till, live root in the soil year-round if we can have that. And that means because those plants are going to feed those organisms. We should not need the fertilizers nor the sprays because when we find the, the plants healthier, the insects go to the fields that were fertilized. And we're seeing that time and time again. But we also need this carbon data. And this is where policy and incentive globally should come to the table. Gabe Brown in North Dakota has become world famous on his regenerative efforts. And he did it on his own with, well, with some guidance and help in his area in North Dakota. But his data shows about 11 tons of carbon per hectare being captured, being stored, accruing in the soil. General reduction of science so you can do one ton. This is 10 times. We don't want to spend time studying the one ton. We want to study the 11 tons. Right. David Johnson uh, at New Mexico State did his own trials, and he was getting similar levels in his own trials. We've also been working with Russell Hedrick in North Carolina, and he got eight and a half tons of carbon per hectare. So these are the farmers we want to really take a look at. Well, we were working with Howard Buffett in Arizona on a research project that we designed, and we stumbled into the fact we got 11 tons. <laughs> now, we're one of those farmers on a farm scale trial. So that's what we want to study. And we want to substantiate it with multiple scientists looking at it from many different levels with flux towers in the field to measure the carbon leaving the soil versus what's accruing in the soil. So how does that work? 
how are you measuring? What is your empirical data that tells you this is how much carbon we have pulled out of the atmosphere and is now in the soil after a year? This is where the flux towers are important. Now, one of the words we get away from, Chance, is sequestration. Okay. A lot of the climate people say, well, how long? We want permanence. We want it sequestered. We got to get them over that idea. I remember years ago when I was at Rodale and I was speaking about how much carbon we could capture and, and it was a lot more than anybody else talked about and people are sort of pushing back. But this one guy said, well, to another scientist, if you want to sequester carbon, cut the forest down and dump the trees in Lake Erie. That carbon's now sequestered. It's not going to go back to the atmosphere. What good did that do? That did more damage. If we're gonna sequester carbon in the soil, that means hold it there for 100 years. That means it's not dynamic. That means it's not part of the living system. That means it's dead carbon. No, we want to accrue it, which means we're going to be losing some and gaining some. All we want to see is a net increase. And if a soil's not breathing and releasing carbon dioxide, it's dirt. It's no longer living. Right. But when it's fungal dominant, we're seeing instead of bacterial dominant, what you get with diversity, you can end up with increasing the carbon levels by 10 times and reducing the uh, respiration four times. So you get more respiration, but on a lot less scale, and you get a whole lot more accrual. It's being stored in the form of even sometimes inorganic carbon, sometimes what's called more liquid carbon, sometimes called particulates left from the carcasses of the bio of the biology all these different forms of carbon that are now down there and not up in the atmosphere and that's all part of the life cycle so we're measuring it with flux towers because it measures the gases what's leaving the soil what's coming back into the soil we're going to get satellite data we're going to use new technology with soil probes that can be remotely read and we're taking the old-fashioned meter deep soil samples and we're going to analyze those in the lab so we want this very well documented, lots of sampling. We want high statistical significance so that we can pass through the peer review. The science should be able to pass through any peer review. And so we have this group of scientists team from different specialties. We're all in conversation every week as we're moving forward. And our first trial has started in Blythe, California with a farmer there. We've seen amazing differences in the soil in the first year, phenomenal differences just in water percolation capacity. So we often think of flooding events as a rain event. And truly, we're having some huge rain events and floods. But if, like on Gabe Brown's farm, when he bought it, water percolated at one quarter of an inch per hour into that soil, well, you can get heavy rainstorms. That means you can get a lot of runoff, right? And that means a flood. If you till it a lot, you break up the air spaces and the ability to percolate. He then, after all of his years of doing this regeneratively, he can now percolate 11 inches an hour. Wow. How many rainstorms do you get 11 inches an hour? So is the flood the rain event or is it the soil and how we've treated it? And in, in Blythe, in this year where this, the field is tilled, it took nine and a half minutes to percolate an inch of water. On the field, we went to no tillage and had cover crops in there. It percolated in a minute and 30 seconds. That's in one year. If you put a spade in the soil where the cover crop was, every time you'd come up with an earthworm. 
You put it in the tilled, bare soil, no earthworms, and the farmer hadn't seen earthworms in 30 years. Wow. It seems like that's a pretty obvious difference there. It's stark. I was even shocked. I took the soil thermometers out. In the bare tilled field, it was 100 degrees in Blythe. The soil was 120 degrees. How much biology wants to live at 120 degrees? Probably not you much. went to the cover crop field that had been mowed. It was There was no cover crop standing. It was 80 degrees. Wow. A 40-degree difference. Think about that bare field. 120 degrees, you're out there in that desert community, it's 100 degrees, but you've turned a heater on at 120 degrees, putting it back into the atmosphere. Right. The way we're treating our soils is devastating, and it's contributing not just by loss of carbon to the atmosphere, but also by heating as, right. as we're heating those soils up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about seeing results that are almost unprecedented, right? It's, science says traditional scientific knowledge over the past several hundred years says you can't build topsoil this fast. You can't, ha you know, one year of difference on a field is not going to completely shift this paradigm. And that's not what you're seeing. You're seeing fast solutions to big problems. There's a few, few core components, but wow, does nature respond when you support her? She knows what she wants to do. I kind of go, where did those earthworms come from? <laughs> I know, right? You know, been it's, here a, for it's a miracle, years. but, but nature supports when the conditions are right. Uh, it's like a morphic field. It, it shows up and it hosts it and it supports it. So, and I know this is way deeper than we can get into right now, but what is sort of the really simple roadmap to going from a over-tilled, traditionally farmed field back to regenerative agriculture that has a thriving soil community in it? So I'm not sure uh, much of, of human history has had that experience because when we were hunters and gatherers, we didn't disturb it. When we moved to tilling, we started to disturb that whole system. So in essence, how do we transform the system? Which, which I think part of this data on this research project is gonna be important. We have to change the scientific paradigm. America is the leader in agriculture scene around the world. We have to change our story of what you should be doing with your soil. And we need, we need the science to help people understand. We've been doing it wrong. Let's get it right. Nature knows. And let's support that robustly. Um, but the other thing is, is that we need farmers to be able to understand why they could or should change. And I was talking to a group of farmers in the Midwest, and one of the farmers who's a great leader in the agricultural movement now, because he's been very successful at it on about 7,000 acres out of Indiana. Wow. He said to me, it was the first time we met, he said, well, you know, Tim, this is a farmer-led movement. And my mind's going back to these... 20 years I've been kind of working on this and different organizations we've gotten going and working on this thing. And I thought, wait a minute, what about what we're doing? I go, no, you're right. It is a farmer-led movement. And I love that. In their minds it is. And actually, a lot of it really is because farmers are teaching farmers. And they're holding conferences all over this country. I've just already been called to speak at one in Lubbock, Texas in February. You're thinking... You're from Texas, Chance. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, a very conservative, traditional farming community. Go, we've got to understand this regenerative thing. We've got to figure out how to do this in a low rainfall area. And they are. They're learning and teaching and sharing. And that's really crucial. And I want to see that in Africa happening. Because the, the Gates Agra-funded Green Revolution that's failed twice will fail always there. The fertilizer expensive. They damage the soil. The soil is already poor. 
And the primary fertility element that that soil lacks is carbon. It lacks in soil organic matter. It lacks in biological life. Once that happens, just like in my fields in Africa, yields will jump. Mine jumped five times. And wow. so what would that do for a smallholder? Not just feed his or her family, but have money in their pocket to send their children to school. What does that do to population curves? It reduces them. When girls get educated, they marry a lot later. They don't have children as soon and numbers start to drop. There's more security in the family. It's this whole demographic transition that we talk about when in every every culture that is going from older systems to this new hyper-globalized, hyper, whatever you want to call it, right? It, the education matters. It matters. It really changes the way, the trajectory of a population over time. It does. It does. Absolutely. Yeah. So what does the future of this project look like to you? And also, when does it become not a project anymore and just kind of how things are done? Well, that's really a, a great question, Sarah. Um, I hope it becomes how things are done very rapidly. The planet needs it and civilization needs it. But in fact, um, you know, we're working very hard on getting funds for it now from everywhere, trying to find the right fit with government grants, which they've never written RFPs like this, you know, proposals like this because they don't understand it yet. We're going to foundations. Often they don't fund research. We're trying to convince them what could be more important than getting the data out here for everybody around the world to understand this paradigm change. We're going to individuals to get this fully funded. We think we'll have enough data in three years to change the conversation that's hard data. Usually carbon data takes five years, but it's because it grows so slowly. Not in our systems. I mean, it's not ours, not in nature's systems. No, she can really create that healthy, vibrant, living soil very, very rapidly. So once that happens, I think it's going to be, um, that's going to help. But there are a lot of other elements in society, if we talk just about the United States, that could help dramatically. And that is, is that the consumer needs to understand this. Wendell Berry once said that eating is an agricultural act. And I want to, with great reverence to Wendell Berry today, I want to amend that and say eating is a climate act that you do three times a day. So where are you sourcing your food? And can you get farmers and your suppliers to produce regeneratively? By going to your grocery store and saying, I want regeneratively produced food, your response would probably be, what's that? <laughs> or I can't get it. But when consumers keep that up, then they start to tell their suppliers. And then suppliers start to say, hey, I need to find it. Or I need to incentivize a farmer to produce it. We've talked to a lot of companies, some multinational companies. Some are claiming they're doing it. Some say we have a target by 2050, and I say to them, what the hell does that matter? 2050, it's too late. You know, go back to your board and let's have another conversation. Many of them are greenwashing, but there are some true performers like Megafood that I listen to their CEO. I, I've worked with their, sorry for this word, sustainability officer, which is, <laughs> you know, uh, where my position on that is. And they're committed to being the company known as a company that improves soil because they get this whole conversation. And they know as a B corporation, they need to do their contribution to it. So they're willing to put their money and their effort into it. We need more companies like that. But as you tell companies that's what you want, they will step up. But it will take us as consumers to do that. 
So we, it's all hands on deck. The ship is going down. But if everybody's here bailing and we repair what we've damaged, we could save it. We could save the damage and re repair the damage and save the hope for what the future could be. Yeah, I absolutely love that. So if somebody wanted to learn more about the soil carbon accrual project, where would you send them so that they can dive a little bit deeper into this topic? Well, there's uh, we made a quick website especially for that project with that title, soilcarbonaccruelproject.org. And it's right there online. I'll give a quick uh, uh, introduction. You can email us uh, at California State University Chico, the Center for Regenerative Agriculture. If you look that up, it'll probably take you right to Chico State site. And we can respond to emails. Um, if you have questions or you want to participate, we would certainly welcome that at any level. Uh, this is all hands on deck. And uh, we're committed to doing what we can to help restore what we know Earth can do for all of life. Yeah. So if you guys are listening and you'd like to learn more about this project and regenerative agriculture in general, scroll down to the show notes. You guys can click on those links. We're going to drop them right there so you can go straight from this show into learning more about this topic. Tim, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us today. This has been a fantastic episode. Definitely my pleasure. And thank you so much for your interest and obviously your conscious participation in that with which we all need to help change. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for listening to this episode of Conservation Connection. If you enjoyed our podcast, go ahead and subscribe to make sure you catch every episode that we post. We'd love to hear from you. So if you want to reach out, go to our website, lastchanceendeavors.com backslash contact and shoot us an email. We love questions from our listeners. So if you heard something that you want to know more about, be sure to let us know. If you've got a minute to spare, leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts will help other conservation-minded people find the show. We'd really appreciate it. A big thanks to the people working to protect our planet, and a big thanks to you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week.